Hey, it's Craig. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to Canadian History X early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Hey everyone, Craig Baird here. Before I begin today's story, I want to take a moment and ask that you check me out on Patreon at www.patreon.com slash CanadaEHX. There are several tiers with great benefits, from ad-free content to t-shirts and other cool stuff. And if you're a fan of Canadian History X, make sure you check out my other shows, From John to Justin and Canada, A Yearly Journey. And don't forget, you can also donate directly to the show at www.canadaehx.com. It helps keep this show going. All right, on with the show. A listener's note. The following episode contains coarse language, adult themes, and content of a violent and disturbing nature, and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. It was an event over 55 years ago that many felt was doomed to fail. It was looked down on and scoffed at before it even began. Yet two Montrealers from different generations had their own special stories about how that event changed their lives forever. Louis Letreve said, The conversations, celebrations, and encounters would make Montreal a city everyone wanted to visit and get to know. It had a major cultural impact on all Quebecers, me included. For Philippe Mayu, this event was much more personal. He would say, My father is from Africa, and my mother is from Montreal. I am a living, breathing example of the impact this exhibition had on Quebec and Montreal, but also of new encounters between people of all origins. In the end, Expo 67 was not only a massive success, but also a landmark moment with over 54 million visitors in just six months. I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X. The world came to visit during Canada's centennial year. I've already covered the Canadian centennial in its own episode, because the event itself was a massive affair, so be sure to check it out. Expo 67, also known as the Universal and International Exhibition, or World's Exhibition, was the highlight of the centennial festivities for the year. The idea for Expo 67 began with Senator Mark Drouin, who had been appointed to the Senate by then Prime Minister John Diefenbaker on October 4, 1957, and named him Speaker of the Senate, despite his lack of parliamentary experience. He first came up with the idea of the World Exhibition being held in Montreal. Himself and Senator Sarto Fournier, the former mayor of Montreal, worked together to present the idea to the Bureau International de Exposition in Paris. First, their efforts were turned down in favor of the 1967 World Exhibition being held in Moscow. But that all changed in 1962 when the USSR cancelled its plans and a new presentation was made to the Bureau by Jean Drapeau, the mayor of Montreal. With that presentation, Montreal was awarded the first World's Exhibition to be held in Canada. And they only had five years to prepare. Pierre Sévigny, the Associate Defence Minister, expressed satisfaction that after long and often discouraging negotiations, Canada has finally won the World's Fair for the 1967 centennial year. He said that a Crown Corporation will be quickly established to begin planning. Montreal's Mayor Jean Drapeau said that at times Montrealers will be outnumbered by the visitors in their own city. Unemployment will be ended as Montreal sets to work in preparation to build a city within a city. 
In fact, maybe a shortage of labor and workers may move in from other parts of Canada. To help in that process, the House of Commons established a crown company called the Canadian Corporation for the 1967 World Exhibition. And their mandate was simple, to build and run the entire event. Funding would come from three different sources, 50% from the federal government, 37.5% from the Quebec provincial government, and 12.5% from the city of Montreal. In May 1963, a conference was held by the three levels of government. They brought together educators, writers, and intellectuals with the goal of choosing a name and expanding on the theme based on the book of Antoine de Saint-Exupéry, who had become a bit of a patron saint of Expo 67. This meeting, since named the Montebello Conference, was chaired by Lucien Pichet, vice-rector of the University of Montreal, and in attendance were the novelist Gabriel Waugh, the surgeon, Wilder Penfield, the geophysicist, J. Tuzo Wilson, the actor, Jean-Louis Roy, the art critic, Alan Jarvis, and half a dozen more Canadians of similar eminence. Together, they hammered out a structure which was later adopted by the fair management. It involved four large theme areas, man the explorer, man the creator, man the producer, man in the community. And that's how the overall theme became man and his world. The goal of Expo 67 was to explain what was happening in the world, what may happen in the near future, and possibly try to influence that future. A Maclean's article from 1964 mentions that the man responsible for developing these dreams was an unlikely figure. At the helm was O.C.S. Robertson, a retired Canadian Navy Commodore who was the Expo's Deputy Administrator in charge of the theme area. Robertson was kind of a sailor scientist who commanded the HMCS Labrador on her historic cruise through the Northwest Passage in 1954. He came to work on Expo 67 on temporary loan from his job with the Arctic Institute of North America to focus on the oceanographic display, but he grasped the idea of the fair so quickly that he was asked to stay on until 1967. He would say, what we're trying to do is show the problems of our time and what the possible solutions are. But the solutions won't be pipe dreams. We're trying to stay within what science and technology know now and what can be done over the next 20 years. The exhibit that brought Robertson to the fair in the first place was Man and the Oceans. It was supposed to show visitors the true nature of the oceans and plans included a tidal wave destroying a village at one point in the exhibition, but mostly focused directly on the way men were now using the oceans and what to expect in the future. The major themes at Expo were conceived on a spectacular scale. For example, a medical exhibit of a 30-foot high replica of a human cell. And then there was the project known as Habitat 67, which was the most ambitious exhibition and the one that most doubted would ever get completed. But before construction could begin in late 1963, the master plan was completed and submitted to Parliament. The next step was finding a site for Expo 67. There were many proposals put forward, but the St. Helen Island, a park in the center of the St. Lawrence River, was ultimately chosen for the Expo site. However, the site was too small, so land would be added to the island using silt and rock dredged from the bottom of the river. A new island, Notre Dame Island, was also created. But almost as soon as the site was chosen, there were questions of its feasibility, and it didn't help that a computer program also predicted that the event would not happen on time. 
The process of construction finally got underway when Prime Minister Lester B. Pearson pulled a lever on a front-end loader and dumped the first batch of fill to enlarge the island. Then Quebec Premier Jean Lesage bulldozed and spread the fill. It was estimated that 25 million tons of fill would be needed to build the island's sites, but soon organizers found out that there wasn't sufficient river bottom sources of landfill. As a result, for months, dump trucks brought in earth from the Montreal Metro excavation to the site on a 24-hour basis. More fill came from the quarries of Montreal and the South Shore, and this caused the cost of building to balloon from the original $10 million estimate to $40 million. Interestingly, the land that was rising out of the harbour was not the property of the Expo Corporation, but the city of Montreal. And then on June 20th, 1964, the fairgrounds were transferred to the corporation. From that point, the man behind the construction, Colonel Edward Churchill, had 1,042 days to get everything built and functioning. Churchill, known simply as Colonel around the construction site, was the right man for the job. During the Second World War, he oversaw the building of 192 airfields around Europe. But back in Montreal, to get everything ready, he used a new management tool called the Critical Path Method. Maclean's would write about this, stating, CPM has its own mysterious jargon and involves yards of charts covered with lines and arrows pointing to little squares, circles, and hexagons. Now Churchill kept everything on schedule through sheer force of will, and an article on June 1st, 1967 in Maclean's would describe him as there's that broad bulldog face under those fierce bushy eyebrows, that raspy voice, surprisingly high-pitched, that infuriating habit he has of cutting in on what you're saying. Before you finish answering one question, he's peppering you with three others. Churchill was also known for having a legendary memory. Gil Serral, the chief engineer of the project, would say that he has an uncanny ability to pack five million things into his mind and remember them all. When asked if Churchill remembered when they first met, Churchill responded, Sure I remember, and the bar bill was $22. On July 1st, 1964, the site was finished and ready to be divided into four areas that would have the entrance, three exhibition areas, and the amusement area. Now as I mentioned, Expo 67 was divided into five groups. Man the creator, man the explorer, man the producer, man the provider, and man in the community. The Expo 67 Corporation then invested over $40 million into the main theme and sub-themes. The pavilions would then be built by participating nations. They could either build their own or come together with other countries in regional pavilions. The Soviet Union invested $15 million in its pavilion, while Czechoslovakia invested $10 million and the United States $9 million. Two of the larger pavilions at Expo are those of the Soviet Union and the United States. They stand like glowering sentries facing each other across the Lemoyne Channel, which separates Ile Notre Dame from Ile Saint Helene. The Soviet pavilion looks on the outside like a giant ski jump rising to a height of 138 feet and surrounded by glass. It's basically a two-story building and filled with an array of hardware and space equipment. Yevgeny Rushnikov, the press officer for the Soviet pavilion, explained the basic idea behind the Soviet presentation. In keeping with man and his world theme of Expo, the team of our pavilion is everything in the name of man for the benefit of man. And, and of course, we are showing some of the achievements, major achievements of the Soviet people during the 50 years, the last 50 years, because this year we have uh, 
the 50th anniversary of the Soviet state. The pavilions themselves were designed in many different styles. The man in his community pavilion was built from frames of Douglas fir harvested in Canada. The German pavilion was a 15-story multi-peaked tent made of plastic to show how materials could be used in building design. The United States invested in its Buckminster Fuller geodesic dome, which would become a prototype for that form of construction, which is still standing today and is known as the Montreal Biosphere. You'd also recognize this architecture if you ever visited Epcot at Disney World in Orlando. Various other groups were also allowed to create their own pavilions. Seven Christian churches combined to make a Christian pavilion, along with the pavilions of the United Nations, the European Economic Community, Judaism, and a youth pavilion. In all, there were 60 pavilions at Expo 67, which included 120 governments, and there were thousands of exhibitors and sponsors in 53 private pavilions. The next task for organizers would be coming up with the logo for Expo 67. That was entrusted to designer Julien Hebe, who used the ancient symbol of man. The pictographs were then linked with each other in a circle to represent friendship around the world. Meanwhile, preparations continued, and by 1966, the number of people working at Expo 67 was quite impressive. Just to cope with the 3 million sheets of paper per month flying across the desks, there were 275 stenographers and 159 clerks to assist 54 division heads with their tasks, which included sending out 17 million informational pieces across the planet in seven languages and in Braille. And the advertising worked because in the months leading up to the opening day, 90,000 Canadians booked advanced hotel accommodations for six months of the expo. The majority of the reservations came from Ontario, followed by British Columbia. Another 150,000 advanced bookings came from the United States. And all those advanced bookings could be because Expo 67 was a Herculean task to accomplish, and people were beginning to believe the hype. McLean's in 1966 wrote that, This is Expo's site. It is as big as downtown Toronto, and most of it didn't exist two years ago. It took more dirt fill than the pharaohs lavished on the pyramids to create these instant islands. If you spent an hour at each exhibit, it would take you about three months to see everything. For many who doubted that everything would be finished on schedule, Expo 67 made believers out of them. Maclean's wrote on January 1st, 1967. Even skeptical visitors to the site are now coming away persuaded that the enthusiasts have been right all along. Expo is literally the greatest show on earth. At the time, Maclean's estimated 4 million Canadians and 6 million international visitors would come to Expo. And boy, were they wrong. Expo 67 officially opened on April 27, 1967 at an invite-only event. As Governor-General Roland Missioner welcomed the world, Prime Minister Pearson lit the Expo flame. At these opening ceremonies, there were 53 heads of state, 1,000 reporters, and an audience of 700 million viewers and listeners from around the world. The next day, on April 28, 1967, Expo 67 opened to the public, and Prime Minister Pearson said, I feel very proud today, but even more so yesterday, when I had the very special, almost childish sense of pride in my country when I was at the opening of Expo. I think everybody felt that way. He would add, Anyone who says we aren't a spectacular people only has to see this. He also admitted that he was wrong for doubting the project would be finished in only four years. Is 
Excellency Pierre Dupuis, Commissioner General of Expo, with the roll call to the flags. And now, the flame that was lighted two years ago in Canada's capital. From the mayor of Montreal to the premier of Quebec, to the prime minister. There it is. And now, I have the honor, in the name of all Canadians, to inaugurate the Universal and International Exposition of 1967. I have the honor, in the name of all Canadians, to inaugurate officially the 1967 Universal and International Exhibition. The next day, the Montreal Gazette published the largest issue in its history up to that point, 152 pages, with five sections highlighting the expo. The first person to walk through the expo gates was Al Carter, a jazz drummer from Chicago. He was known as Mr. First because in 1933 he became the first paying male customer of the Century of Progress World's Fair in Chicago, and for more than 50 years he devoted himself to being first, or last if necessary, at any significant event. He was presented a gold watch for the honor. For the rest of the public, it would cost them $12 for a week's admission, or about $100 today, and those in attendance were welcomed by an electronic billboard that was 40 feet wide and 30 feet high that showed wait times, the daily program, the weather, and what tickets were still available. Guests explored the grounds, and food lovers had ample choices as pavilions offered everything from cotton candy to caviar. Although it was expensive. A dinner for two could cost as much as $40, which would be $334 today. McLean's wrote, A gourmet could spend six months eating three meals a day at Expo 67 and never taste the same dish twice, but he would have to be a millionaire gourmet. Guiding visitors through the site were 240 hostesses wearing miniskirts. Have you had any questions yet? Oh, have I had questions? I've had all sorts of questions. Like what? Like where, first of all, where do we change American money? This seems to be the real problem now. And where do you? Well, the bank isn't open yet, so you can't change it until you get on the site or on, at this bank at 10 o'clock. So that's the, the biggest problem. But they will accept it at par, the American money, so you can get on the site and then um, get it changed on the bank on the site. And what other questions? Um, where do I get my passport validated? So they're having trouble with that. Uh, where's this? Where's that? All sorts of little obscure things. You look a little chilly. <laughs> it's cold. Selected out of 3,000 who applied, they assisted the guests with directions and more. And they had to speak at least English and French, although some spoke many more, like Sonia Samier, who spoke seven languages. Not only that, she played tennis, skin-dived, and skied. I looked more into her, and there's a woman with the same name who lives in Montreal today. She attended McGill, the University of Kansas, and Polytechnic Montreal. She even took part in the Schools on Board Arctic Net Outreach Program in 2015. She was one of only two Canadian science teachers chosen to accompany 10 students on an Arctic expedition for 10 days. I don't know for sure if this is her, but given her resume during Expo 67, I'm feeling pretty confident. A crowd of 200,000 were expected for the opening day, but between 310 and 350,000 people showed up. The Montreal Gazette reported that the computers were unable to keep up with the first day attendance and the counting mechanism broke down during the day. So many people were going to the 132-acre amusement park that the gyrotron, the largest and most expensive part of the park, broke down for much of the day. 
McLean's Magazine wrote of the fair, All roads lead to Expo 67, or to give it the proper title, the Universal and International Exhibition 1967. It is the first true world's fair ever to be held in North America. It is also Canada's largest single centennial project. The Montreal Star went on to say, It is the most staggering Canadian achievement since the vast land was finally linked by a transcontinental railway. And issues with computing systems weren't the only problems on opening day. Vietnam War protesters picketed outside the entrance gates, and there were threats from the FLQ. The Front de Liberation de Quebec was a Marxist-Leninist organization and Quebec separatist group, founded in the early 1960s. Their goal was to establish an independent and socialist Quebec through violent means, and members were considered a terrorist group by the Canadian government. Worries of disruptions quickly dissipated though as the group was inactive during the entire exhibition. And as visitors flocked to Expo 67, they were not only amazed by the wonder of the pavilions, but also entertained by the musicians including Thelonious Monk, The Grateful Dead, and Jefferson Airplane. And those who couldn't attend themselves got to watch it on TV. On May 2nd and 21st, The Ed Sullivan Show broadcasted from Expo 67 with The Supremes, Petula Clark, and The Seekers performing. The show also gave viewers a taped tour of the grounds with stops at various pavilions. Those outside of the United States got to experience the wonder of Expo by watching Our World, a two-hour international program that was broadcast live to 500 million viewers. The history-making event also welcomed several dignitaries. The most prominent one was Queen Elizabeth II, who visited in conjunction with Candace Centennial. Other well-known visitors to the fair included President Lyndon Johnson, Princess Grace of Monaco, former First Lady Jackie Kennedy, former U.S. Attorney General Robert F. Kennedy, and French President Charles de Gaulle. Charles de Gaulle actually caused an uproar during his visit when he spoke at Montreal City Hall on July 24th and said, Viva Montreal! Viva le Québec! Viva le Québec libre! This was considered a major breach of diplomatic protocol, and it would inflame the growing sovereignty movement in Quebec. Prime Minister Pearson condemned the speech by saying, The people of Canada are free. Every province in Canada is free. Canadians do not need to be liberated. Indeed, many thousands of Canadians gave their lives in two world wars in the liberation of France and of other European countries. De Gaulle's words proved to be a watershed moment during the Quebec Quiet Revolution, which was a time in the 1960s to describe a slow change in Quebec from one of secularism, ruled by the Catholic Church, to a more progressive province. The speech also inspired René Lévesque, the future premier and separatist of Quebec. And after his faux pas, the French president left Canada instead of visiting Ottawa, where he was to meet with Prime Minister Pearson. The comments by the French president weren't the only disruption. A 30-day transit strike in September cut heavily into attendance and revenue figures for the Montreal Expo as it was heading into its final month. To offset disappointment, Expo 67 was extended for two days longer than originally scheduled so visitors could have one final weekend of wonder. Then. On October 29, 1967, then Prime Minister Pearson doused the Expo 67 flame, while Governor-General Roland Missioner closed out the festivities by saying, It is with great regret that I declare that the Universal and International Exhibition of 1967 has come to an official end. All rides shut down at 3.50pm, and just 10 minutes later, the Expo grounds closed for their final time. Montrealer Giselle Fournier was there, and she said, the world came to us, and now it's going away. Look at the faces of the people. Expo means culture. I only hope it does not die. We need this culture. 
it means a lot to Canada, not just to Montreal. And it did mean a lot to millions. Expo 67 was expected to host 26 million people from April 28th to October 27th, but in the end, over 50 million went through the fairgrounds. And this figure doesn't even count the 5 million admissions for performers, employees, official visitors, and the press. The most popular pavilion was the Soviet Union exhibit, which attracted 13 million visitors, followed by the Canadian pavilion with 11 million, then the United States pavilion with 9 million, and France was close behind with 8.5 million. In all, Expo 67 cost Canada, Quebec, and Montreal about $283 million, which would be about $2.3 billion today. And while that may seem like a lot, the return on investment was astronomical. Tourist revenue alone calculated at $480 million, or $4 billion today. And after Expo 67, the grounds hosted a standing collection of international pavilions known collectively as Man and His World. Unfortunately, attendance fell rapidly. Just a few years later in 1971, the entire island closed to the public until 1974, when it became a new rowing and canoeing sprint basin as Montreal prepared to host the 1976 Summer Olympics. In 1975, a fire took out the Ontario Pavilion, and just a year later, the Buckminster Fuller Dome was destroyed by fire as well. By this point, the entire site was falling into disrepair, and several pavilions were crumbling and vandalized. And after a few brief reopenings, the remaining small pavilions on the island were closed for good in 1984. Only two pavilions still stand today. The Buckminster Fuller Sphere was rebuilt, and as I mentioned earlier, became the Montreal Biosphere, a museum devoted to the environment. The other structure that you can still see today is the famous Habitat 67. As I mentioned, it was the only exhibit not completed in time for opening, as the ambitious project attempted to reimagine apartment living. The structure is made up of 354 prefabricated concrete cubes consisting of 168 apartments, and it was designed by an architectural student from McGill, Moshi Safdi. It aimed to solve urban ills with its unique cubist design, but costs for Habitat 67 spun out of control, and in order to recoup the costs after Expo, the government set rents so high no one could afford to live there. Due to its concrete design, it had severe problems by the 1970s as well, as water seeped into the porous concrete and mold got into the ventilation system. It was sold to private hands in the mid-1980s and still serves as an apartment building to this day. It has also been awarded heritage status by the provincial government. Today, Expo 67 is considered a landmark moment for Canada when the country hosted the world for arguably the first time, and it continues to be one of the most successful world exhibitions of the 20th century. And if you're a listener of this podcast, you'll know it wasn't the last world exhibition to be held in Canada. Almost two decades later, Expo 86 was held in Vancouver. Now this is the end of the story for Expo 67, but stick around for one final fact. In 1969, a new Major League Baseball team would take to the field, and for the first time it was located outside the United States. The Montreal Expos, named for Expo 67, took to the field for the first time on April 8, 1969, winning 11-10 over the New York Mets at Shea Stadium. For nearly four decades, the Montreal Expos would experience the highs and lows of a baseball team. They would play their first years in the small Jerry Park Stadium before moving to the larger Olympic Stadium in 1977. The team failed to post a winning record for its first 10 seasons, but began to improve through the 1980s. In 1994, the Expos had the best record in baseball before the baseball strike ended their season and their World Series hopes. 
Then, after years of speculation, the team would relocate to Washington for the 2005 season. Over the course of their 36 years in Montreal, a legacy that began with Expo 67, the team had 2,753 wins, 2,943 losses, and four ties. Among its former teammates, 11 players and managers are in the Baseball Hall of Fame, including three, Gary Carter, Andrew Dawson, and Tim Raines, who appear with an Expo's hat on their plaque. Not bad for a team born from a World's Fair. Thank you for joining me this week on Canadian History X. Information from Canadian Encyclopedia, CBC, Maclean's Wikipedia, Parc Jean Drapeau, Historica Canada, Library and Archives Canada, The Guardian, Edmonton Journal, Ottawa Citizen, Montreal Gazette, and the National Film Board of Canada. This show is researched, produced, and written by me, Craig Baird, with the help of Dila Velasquez. Audio production and design by Rosalind Kufour. If this is your first time listening and you like what you heard, please take a moment and give us a five-star review to help other people find these amazing stories. And there are so many for you to sink your teeth into. If you enjoy this podcast, then please check out my other podcasts, From John to Justin, Canada, A Yearly Journey, Pucks and Cups, and Canada's Great War. We love hearing from you, so if you have a show topic you want me to cover, email me at craig at canadaehx.com or stop by my website and social media. I'll include all of those in my show notes. Until next time, I'm Craig Baird, and this is Canadian History X.